Part 3 on a flight from Washington, D.C. When Jean Heller's story covered the front pages of major newspapers across the country on July 26, 1972, Fred Gray was on a flight from Washington, D.C. when he read the article, tucked away at the bottom left side of the front page, under the fold. He was surprised that something like this would have happened. As a civil rights lawyer who represented Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr., Fred Gray was shocked to learn that the study was happening to people who look like him and happening next to where he grew up and where he currently practiced law, Macon County, Alabama. Over the subsequent days, reporters visited Macon County, looking to interview participants to the surprise of many, who were completely unaware that the study was a sham and the story had broken. Fred Gray was approached by Charles Pollard, a hard-working, humble man who had been recruited from the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church all those years ago. Charles Pollard requested Fred Gray to represent him and the fellow subjects to bring a case against the PHS and the government. The case that Fred Gray would make is an important part of the Tuskegee study history. The amount of effort and work Fred Gray and his team did to bring the case to trial and dealing with the aftermath is nothing short of incredible. Fred Gray didn't file a lawsuit immediately. He withheld his lawsuit for a year, hoping that the government would voluntarily offer compensation and medical care. The government never did. So after a year of waiting, Fred Gray began building his case. He alleged that the United States government violated the constitutional rights of the participants while the Tuskegee syphilis study was being conducted, and that the government continued to not treat the syphilitic patients even after penicillin was available. He also said the Public Health Service failed to communicate to the participants that they were in a study and that they had syphilis, which there was a treatment available for. The PHS also failed to obtain written consent from the participants to be a part of the study. The participants trusted that they were being treated correctly by the PHS for whatever disease they had. And lastly, there were no rules and regulations controlling the study. Fred Gray left Eunice Rivers and the Tuskegee Institute out of the lawsuit, believing it would be unrealistic to have expected the Tuskegee Institute to refuse their cooperation with the government. He also felt that the Institute and Nurse Rivers were misled, betrayed, and taken advantage of during the study. To fund the case, Fred Gray was able to receive a loan from Tuskegee's Alabama Exchange Bank with the stipulation that he would pay the bank no matter the outcome of the lawsuit. But the bank was willing to wait until there was a resolution for the case before requesting any repayment. The lawsuit was filed on July 24, 1973, suing for $1.8 billion in damages, or $10.5 billion today, for the surviving participants and the heirs of those who had died. The government immediately stalled Fred Gray's case by waiting a full year before they filed a complaint in response claiming the government couldn't find the documents pertaining to the study needed for discovery, the exchange of information by both sides before a trial, by saying, quote, so far, no documents found. They also claimed that the statute of limitations had run out and because Fred Gray did not represent all of the participants, he was not permitted to bring the case to trial. With the case at a standstill, Fred Gray 
being the ambitious lawyer he was, sought information and assistance from other lawyers in order to bring justice to the participants of the study. Fred Gray gathered his resources and connections as a leader in his community to find representatives for 463 people, which included living and deceased participants of the study. While he was gathering signatures, he received unexpected help from James Jones, who at that time was a medical researcher working on his book, Bad Blood, about the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. Jones located early records of the study, 410 boxes that had information from 1931 to 1939 found in the National Archives, or America's Record Keeper, which houses all of the documents and materials that are produced by the federal government. With all of the complaints amended, Fred Gray, on August 1, 1974, was able to bring his class action civil suit to the United States District Court for the Middle District of Alabama. And they got a wonderful judge uh, in the case, and he, uh, he, just, he just threw the book at the government. The settlement was something over $10 million. The case would never go to trial, with the government choosing to settle the case with an out-of-court settlement of $10 million, which included Fred Gray and his clients dropping further actions in exchange for direct payments into interest-bearing accounts dispersed through four categories that determine the amount of money received. I met with the last survivor of the study in Fred Gray's office. And he was telling me that while he did, he wasn't a rich man. The study had enabled him to live, to pay off all his bills, to buy a new tractor, and to live the rest of his life in comfort. You would expect then that this might be the start of a happy ending, but the trouble and complication would continue for Fred Gray and his legal team. By the time the case was settled and the payout received in 1974, it was presumed that most of the subjects in the study were deceased. Finding next of kin was not always easy. In some cases, Fred Gray only had the name of the participant, so Fred Gray would place ads in the local newspapers across the country seeking the next of kin for the subject of the study. And he would wait. As expected, there was a huge turnout from legitimate and illegitimate claims coming from all over, one all the way from Europe. These claims tried to convince Fred Gray they had relatives in the study. Some of the claims filed were so bold that women said they were participants of the Tuskegee study, a study notorious for only using black men, a sign of the kind of misinformation that could have been created and spread at this time. Distributing the funds to the correct heirs took time and was further complicated by an Alabama law that prevented heirs born out of wedlock from receiving any portion of their father's estate. The physicians at the PHS remained steadfast in their belief that the Tuskegee syphilis study was conducted in good conscience, probably bitter at the public's reaction and how they misunderstood the perceived scientific benefits of the study. Susan Reverby was talking about John Cutler. And whose family has made the ultimate sacrifice itself during the war, right? He's lost both of his brothers. And now he's a general in charge of the war on syphilis. And he's going to make decisions about who lives or dies. And so I just think those kinds of questions are really worth thinking about in terms of the kind of power we tend to give medicine and the language we use um, about it. And so and in some ways, the rise of bioethics was in fact, uh, in part about saying, well, wait a minute, 
maybe the people you're sending off to war have to at least get to vote on whether or not they want to go do it or not. But this isn't, I mean, we didn't really talk about it in those ways, but I think it's really important to think about it in that kind of way and, and the kind of power we give physicians um, or have historically, both in terms of medical care, but also in terms of research. I mean, within the PHS, uh, you wrote in your book that, you know, you, you spoke to it a little bit, that it was a very military-style structure, but even within the PHS, there was a, even a sense of pride to be a part of it. It was like an elite status, right? Like, it wasn't just being a private right. physician, because many of the doctors had had a private practice, and they said, this isn't for me. I, I have this greater ambition. Right. Right. And then there's a wall of martyrs, you know, like there is at the CIA of guys who got killed, you know. There's a wall of martyrs of people who died, you know, treating, you know, disease. And so, you know, it's just, it's a kind of greater good sense of what it meant to be part of, of public health and what that means. And you really do want people to feel that way, that, that there is a responsibility. But we've come to the belief now that increasingly people should at least decide for themselves whether or not they want to be in a study or not. And how do you make that decision? What kind of information do you give them? I mean, those are all the things that bioethics, in some ways, when it deals with research ethics, tries to think about. You know, how do we make sure people aren't being coerced, um, that they are making as informed, they can do inform, what we now call informed consent. For many of those conducting the study and the research, there was not much of an apology or regret, even from Nurse Rivers. She remained ambiguous and in ways silent on her opinions about the study, only going so far to say that she didn't feel that they mistreated the patients. A mistake that Eunice Rivers will admit to, though, is that the doctors never told the patients they had syphilis. And while so much emphasis is put on Eunice Rivers, in Miss Evers' boys, and in this segment now, we have to remember what it meant to work as a nurse in that time. The Tuskegee Syphilis Study has a rich history, and the aftermath tells us so much about not only the challenges justice requires, but if it's possible to find justice at all. Without the tireless work of Fred Gray, his legal team, political support, and help from researcher James Jones, who knows what could have happened. In a time when the most popular films depict a superhero saving the world, the reality is an ambitious group of people who have to fight tooth and nail, and through their tenacity, bravery, and resilience, they're able to affect change. Not perfect change, but change that nudges the human experience in the right direction. Part 4. Practice Makes Perfect With history trending towards justice, we want to spend some time to look at what kind of work media plays in helping us remember the wrong history, or maybe a version of the story that claims to present the facts.